What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Rewired Soul podcast. And to finish up the week of scientific thinking and healthy conflict, I had the opportunity, the honor to talk with Michael Shermer. All right. So those of you who don't know who Michael Shermer is, you better ask somebody. All right. Michael Shermer is just one of my favorite authors, thinkers, writers, just all around awesome guy. Um, funny story. Uh, I, I actually tried reading one of his books like years ago and I was like, eh, I'm not really a fan. And then I picked up his book, uh, one of his uh, recent books years later and I became hooked. And he has so many books and I've just been binging them. So I'm so glad I was able to talk to him. But real quick, like I, I hope, you know, you learn from my experience too. Like there's a lot of books where I tried to read it. I was just at a weird place, wasn't really into it. But then when my curiosity was peaked at some point, I'm like, huh, maybe I'll give that book a try. I've gone back to so many books that I absolutely loved. But anyways, Michael Shermer, he is a skeptic and he created Skeptic Magazine and now uh, he he also uh, writes books, he teaches, um, and he has so many great books. Like when I really started trying to understand why people believe in weird stuff like the supernatural and conspiracies, everything like that, I started reading Michael Shermer's books. And and yeah, he's he's done so much research around this and he has uh, a podcast. He's so passionate about this and he loves talking to other people about these topics as well. So I will link a bunch of his books down below as well as his uh, social media and his podcast. But you can't, you can't uh, read, watch, or listen to Michael Shermer's content without becoming a better thinker. And I think that's one of the, the primary reasons I started this podcast, talking to authors. And uh, <laughs> after weeks of bugging Michael on Twitter, he finally got back to me. He's like, all right, let's do this. And in this episode, we decided, uh, you know, we, we talked about a lot of stuff. I had him for an hour and a half, so there's a, a little bit longer. But uh, we decided we were going to talk about all the recent news around UFOs. We talked about some conspiracy theories. But this conversation, it, it takes some turns. We talk about uh, biases and psychology. And we talk about uh, a little bit about, you know, addiction and free will and science denial and so many interesting subjects. Like, I, I just re-listened to this as I edited it, and it was such a great conversation. So I really hope all of you enjoy it and if you do uh not only should you check out michael Shermer's books and everything else he's working on down in the description below but make sure you are following this podcast like it subscribe it follow it uh share it with other people uh we're about two months in trying to get it out there because we're always always having great conversations with non-fiction authors great thinkers and yeah this is one of my favorite conversations so i hope you enjoy without further ado here's my conversation with michael Shermer. Michael Shermer, how are you doing today, Michael? I'm, I'm doing very well, thank you. Beautiful. Uh, so, so yeah. So the first, first, I want to, I want to talk a little bit. Like I, uh, I've, I've read 
just a ton of your books and like you really helped me, you know, with my thinking and everything like that. But the first thing I'm kind of curious about, because you've been doing this for years and just, you know, looking at, you know, these, these claims of things like UFOs and the supernatural. And, and I'm curious what, what kind of drives you. Like for me personally, I, I'm coming up on nine years sober this week and learning to question my own beliefs and change the way I think and update my beliefs, it, it, it pretty much saved my life, right? So, so now it's something that I try to do on a daily basis. But like for someone like you, what's been keeping you going this year where you're always looking at all these different topics and subjects? Oh, well, for me, it's, it's all kind of part of the same um, program that we um, envisioned at Skeptic Magazine when we started uh, in 1992. That is to say, we, we wanna understand uh, the truth how we can get at it through the best tools of science and reason and rationality. And basically I apply that to everything that I mm-hmm. can think of. No sacred cows, nothing outside of, of exploring through science and reason and even, you know, moral issues and religious issues mm-hmm. and meaning and purpose issues. Uh, I don't draw the line anywhere. Uh, economics, politics, whatever, yeah. just push the envelope as far as we can uh, so that, you know, we're not just, talking past each other or we're not just voicing our our subjective opinions and we can never get closer to the truth i i do think uh, we can make make progress that way and mm-hmm. um so that's kind of my my life's mission in that sense yeah so so that that's something i i kind of wonder about like you've you've written books on you know just like uh how we believe and uh you know just the difference you know between theists and atheists and all this kind of stuff so whenever I'm reading these books, I'm always wondering, I'm like, who is the target audience, right? Like, so, so I pick up one of the books and I'm curious. I'm like, why do people believe in this stuff? Um, but when you're, when you're talking about conspiracies, when you're talking about UFOs and QAnon, I don't think you're, you're like, oh, someone from QAnon is going to pick up my book and change their, their mind. So. Well, who, they might, you never know. <laughs> yeah, they, they could. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. I might be completely off. So like, who, who, do you, who are you thinking about when you're, when you're writing or creating content, whether it's a book or articles or whatever? Well, uh, general readers is how it's often described in the book uh, business. They make a distinction between trade books and, and scholarly books. And mm-hmm. uh, I, don't ma- I don't make that distinction. To me, they're, um, they're all books for everybody, scholars, professional scientists, general readers, mm-hmm. person at the airport bookstall. Uh, and my uh, model for this is a, a number of my favorite authors and friends, uh, Stephen Jay Gould, um, Jared Diamond, Stephen Pinker, Richard Dawkins. Mm-hmm. You know, they write books that are for everybody. And yeah. they're not uh, they're not just trade popular ver- you know, versions of their more technical works. They're the only works there are. And uh, just like The Origin of Species, it's highly readable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's not the technical version of Darwin's papers. It's the only version there is. Same thing with Guns, Germs, and Steel by Jared Diamond. Mm-hmm. This is not a popularized, shortened synthesis of his technical work. It's the only work there is. Yeah. And, uh, and, and same thing with uh, Richard Dawkins, The Selfish Gene, Stephen Pinker's The Better Angels of Our Nature. And so on. There's lots of books like this. They're generally lumped under trade books or popular books or whatever, mm-hmm. but they're, they're really, I mean, if you pick them up, they're full of references. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they're cited by professional scholars and scientists and as if they were the technical work. So 
I don't have a name for that yet. I was trying to think of a name for it, for that actually yeah. universal books, or I don't know what they should be called, but uh, that's what I aim at is just, you know, anybody should, should be able to pick this up. I'm yeah. just finishing up my next book on conspiracies and I'm writing it for everybody, mm-hmm. you know, from, from, from the QAnon Trump supporter to the, the social scientist that studies conspiracies, you know, as a living. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, and, and I think that's one of the reasons why I, I love, you know, your books and some of the, you know, other authors and people that you mentioned, because like me, like I just have this natural curiosity. I didn't even graduate college, but like I, you know, when I'm reading and you guys are talking about whether it's, you know, neuroscience or psychology or whatever, it's, it's broken down for like the average person. So, so you can read it. And, and when we're talking about, like, you just mentioned, like, you know, you're working on an upcoming book on like conspiracies and stuff like that. Like you've been doing this for so long and I'm, I'm curious, have you, have you ever like, or is there a percentage of how many people have like switched? Have they read one of your pieces or come to one of your talks or read one of your books? And they're like, you know what? I thought the earth was flat, but you helped me, you know, like how often does that, that happen? Because it seems like it's such a hard thing for people to change that belief. I get letters every day, but you know, they're just anecdotes. Everybody gets (laughs) letters. So (laughs) it doesn't really mean anything. It's not data. The data we have on to what extent people change their minds. uh, You can come at this different ways. For example, there are correlations between education and higher rates of skepticism about the paranormal, the supernatural and conspiracies and extraterrestrials, things like that, Mm -hmm. but not as much as you might think. Uh, in, In other words, having knowledge of science uh, or scientific facts is is not you know a foolproof prophylactic against um, supernatural and superstitious beliefs. It does have an effect, but not uh, hugely so. There are some studies of people that teach courses on this, you know, and they give surveys at the mm. beginning of class, at the end of class, and of course there's a, a pretty big effect there. But 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 then again, they're the ends are pretty small, and of course the professors been pounding away on those particular issues the entire semester that they're going to talk uh, that they're going to survey the students on at the end of the semester. So that's not the same as to what extent do, do we have an effect on the general public? We mean scientists, skeptics, whatever mm-hmm. um, people who write books or publish magazines or write op-eds or, or teach uh, and so forth. You know, are we changing people's minds? Well, that's, it's really hard to say. <laughs> the polling data, again, are, are fairly consistent over the last 50 years or so. Uh, when, when they're asked about uh, questions about the supernatural, the paranormal, uh, superstitious beliefs, conspiracies, things like that, the rates haven't really nudged all that much. So it does make people wonder, you know, to what extent are we naturally just irrational and there's nothing we could do about it? On the other hand, there are uh, debiasing programs. That is, if you teach people about cognitive biases, they begin, they they get better at spotting them, but mostly in other people. Um, Uh There's a a bias bias. That is, we we tend not to see the bias in ourselves. And so you have to teach that. that, But then there might be a bias 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 and so so forth. Uh, So there's only so much we could do. And so it's, it's like, uh, I'll have, I'll have work to go for for the rest of my career. Yeah. And and it's interesting. So, so everybody listening, uh, Michael has an awesome podcast and you just had Daniel Kahneman on there and I've heard him talk about this, but that, that leads me to another question that I, I, I'm always wondering about is you've been doing this for, for so long. You, you're, 
you know about the biases, the heuristics and everything like that. Like, but like even Daniel Kahneman says, you know, you're, you're never going to just stop them. So what do you do to stop that bias bias where you're not just only seeing it other people? Like, what are some tips or tools that you could offer the average person? Like, how do you check in with yourself and know that you're not just playing into motivated reasoning or confirmation bias or all this other stuff? There are cognitive scientists that disagree with Daniel Kahneman about yeah. to what extent we're irrational. Gert Ingerinzer, for example, mm. the German cognitive psychologist, has written several books about this where he argues that the way Danny presents, Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky, present the problems to subjects makes it harder for them to solve the problems and mm. makes it look like they're more irrational than they actually are. So this is called bounded rationality and uh, evolutionary psychologists like Tubi and Cosmides and Steven Pinker also show that if you present these um, rationality problems in an ecosystem in which would be similar to what we evolved in, that is problems mm. involving other, other people, deception, deception, detection, relationships between people rather than uh, symbolic logic symbol, you know, logic symbols and things like that, then people are better at that. Mm. So my take on this is that we're not that gullible. We're not that stupid and irrational. It's not that hopeless that if you present problems in a way that uh, it's easier for people to solve it, it sort of ecologically what their environment is, but, but several other factors as well. That is, for example, if the belief in question that you're talking about is deeply important to the person in terms of their self-identity, Mm -hmm. Like if it's if, if you want to talk about the resurrection of Jesus with a Christian, you're not going to get far because they're not going to give that up as a central core of their being. Uh, whereas maybe they would if it was climate change or vaccines or some other controversy that they didn't have <laughs> a big invested interest in. Uh, but on the other hand, if you, you know, trying to talk to an anti-vaxxer or a climate denier, again, this is if this is part of their self-identity. You know, they say, let's say, define themselves a, as a conservative or a Republican. And in their mind, that means denying vaccines and denying climate change. Then they're not likely to give it up, regardless of the facts. The facts are kind of irrelevant mm -hmm. um, because the belief itself stands for something else. It's a proxy for something else. And that if you're talking about this thing over here and they're talking about this other thing over there, then you're not going to get anywhere. You're just talking across purposes. So you, get, you, you need to identify with the person mm -hmm. what exactly it is that concerns them about, you know, what happened in 9-11 or vaccines or climate change or whatever. And uh, so you can see where they're coming from. Mm -hmm. and then you can approach, then you can approach the problem by trying to take that off the table. In other words, you, you don't have to give up your conservatism and your beliefs and free markets and capitalism and so yeah. on. We're just talking about parts per million of CO2 gases. That's it. That's all we're talking about here. Yeah. You know, and try to take that off the table. So do you, do you ever, do you ever run into your own biases or you look back on like a conversation you had, you know, a week ago and you're like, oh wait, maybe I was, I was caught up in, in something like this, or, or maybe you were agreeing with things that, you know, your colleagues or peers were we're talking about or like oh yeah pretty... sure I, yes this, I, i've been i mean i pound on conservatives on the right and far left progressives on, on the left quite a bit on yeah. twitter 
And I'd say a good number of them are, you know, I'll throw stuff out that, you know, I don't really know for sure in this particular case, if that's true, but I just have a sense that, you know, that, that these conservatives go too far or those, those uh, mm. woke progressives go too far. And, uh, but on the other hand, that's kind of what Twitter is, right? I yeah. Mean, it's, it's not, it's not really a platform of scholarship and, you know, careful nuanced arguments. Even yeah. if you, if you release a 12 part Twitter thread, I mean, that's barely just like a couple paragraphs. It's yeah. nothing. And it's not yeah. even a, you know, a quarter of an op-ed piece in a newspaper. <laughs> so, you know, if that's how you're judging somebody, well, you know, that's probably not the best example. Yeah, no, I, absolutely. And that's, that's something I've been thinking about a lot lately. That's, that's one of the reasons why I, I love books because I feel like it, it, it's the best way to give somebody a, a, a fair chance to fully explain their arguments, their thoughts and how they went through it. Because Twitter, you get 280 characters or something like that. But like, you know, with one of your books, if you say, hey, I, you know, I don't believe in the paranormal, here's why the evidence doesn't add up. Like if you can't do that in hundreds of pages, that's your fault, you know what I mean? But uh, like on Twitter, it's hard to get the full context of, you know, what somebody's thinking or even like you said in a few, in a Twitter thread, right? Um, right. But, you, you were mentioning that that kind of identity aspect too. And I was just reading about that from something from, uh, from Lee McIntyre too. And uh, he was talking about being at a Flat Earther conference and how, how it becomes part of that identity. So even when we're talking about, uh, like we're about to dive into all the recent UFO stuff, but especially in the age of social media, can, can you explain a little bit how, why that makes it so difficult? Because you have people joining Facebook groups with their fellow flat earthers or the anti-vax people, you got like a mom group and I'm never going to vaccinate my kid or, you know, and things like that. So, so is this like a combination of like personal identity as well as like the tribalism of being with a group? Because if you disconnect from them, then you lose your friends and family and stuff like that. So like, how does that, that all work out from, from what you've experienced? Yeah, so certainly, uh, you know, we're a social primate species, so our, our fellow group members matter very much to us. Our reputation, especially reputation management is important in human societies. And so, you know, what other people think about me matters to me, mm-hmm. you know, to all of us. And, uh, and so, again, um, a particular belief you're, you're, you're concerned about, and, if, you know, vaccines or uh, or, or climate change or whatever, evolution, whatnot. Um, it, it depends, again, not only self-identity uh, of holding that belief, but to what extent does that person's uh, social community also believe it? You know, if, 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 if everyone in their family is also Christian or climate deniers or whatever, or right. all their friends and colleagues, everybody they go to church with and, and so on, again, it's going to be harder to give it up, uh, much less even consider it rationally. And, uh, and so you have to take that in consideration, you know, these are, you know, multiple factors that go into sustaining beliefs mm-hmm. that people hold slightly different than how they obtain the beliefs in the first place or why they give them up, mm-hmm. uh, but related to that. Yeah. So social aspects is, is important. Yeah. Is, do you, do you see that being an issue? Like, cause I'm sure you get letters, emails, tweets and stuff where people are, you know, like my friend, my family member, you know, I don't know why they believe in this. And do you think the, that people are trying to understand conspiracy theorists or people who believe in these things, they don't really get that whole identity aspect of it? 
Like, does it seem like that's something that not a lot of people really understand? Yeah, almost nobody understands that. That's why I <laughs> write. That's why I write about it. You know, that's that's kind of a new contribution, like to conspiracy theories. The, you know, the the aspects, the deeper aspects of the particular conspiracy theory. What does it represent? You know, it's mm-hmm. a proxy for something else that you're not thinking about, that you need to think about if you want to understand why people hold those beliefs and why they won't seemingly give them up. And that would apply mm-hmm. to anything. Yeah, and uh, so. So if I'm understanding, you know, this stuff, it feels like being a little bit more compassionate and, and understanding that this might have to do with, you know, somebody who, who's been lonely and they wanted to find a group to fit in with. Maybe they lost, you know, family members or friends or went through a divorce and, you know, they just joined this group of whoever it is, right? So there's this need for us to be a little bit more compassionate. But like when I see people like you or uh, even like Mick West talking about this UFO stuff, how do you keep your cool? Because the last thing you want to do is like attack that person, insult their intelligence. You know, I know you say you like you, you, you do you get a little sassy on Twitter, but how do you keep your composure when someone's just saying something completely off the wall that you're like 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 lizard people or whatever it is? <laughs> <Lizard> people, yeah, <laughs> yes. Well, in part, it's my day job. It's what I do for a living. And- <laughs> And, uh, you know, so and if you consider myself an educator, I've been a professor for 30 years. So, you know, I'm just used to talking to people and engaging them on subjects about which we might disagree. So I'm just kind of used to that. It's not that I don't get frustrated. Of course, I do. Uh, And sometimes I want to just roll my eyes and and make a a, a snarky remark about how they've lost their minds or they're delusional or whatever. And I may be thinking that, (laughs) Uh, but, but, you know, you just have to sort of autocorrect along the lines of, you know, as a strategy, if I open my mouth and say, this is how far is this going to get me with this person? You know, so, I mean, I've written about, you know, like the, the ways to have, you know, the half dozen or dozen ways to, have difficult conversations with people, you know, the kind of the things you got to do, like keep emotion out of it. Don't it just standard arguments from philosophy and, and yeah. rationality of, you know, no, no ad hominem. Don't attack the person. No ad Hitlerum. Don't uh, equate them with Hitler and the Nazis. And, you know, those kinds of things, um, you know, try to restate in your own words, what you think they're arguing so that you're not straw manning them. You're steel manning them or, you're not talking about you're not talking across purposes. You know that maybe you're countering an argument that they don't actually even make, and yeah. unless you restate it, then and they say yes, that's what I'm arguing. Yeah. Usually they don't say that. Then uh, uh, then what's the point of the conversation? Yeah, yeah, no, that that makes total sense. And and yeah, so so now I want to I want to ask you about. Uh, specifically with all the news about UFOs and the UAPs and the 60 Minutes episode that's been all over the news. And so here's a conversation. Here's a fun story for you, Michael. The other day I was telling my girlfriend how you just ruined outer space for me by discussing like the probabilities, right? Because space is so huge and I don't think we grasp that. Like the odds of you know, the odds of life being on another planet, which, you know, it could happen, or the odds of another life, uh, you know, some kind of species finding us on this planet, you know, just bumping into Earth and things like that. Like, from a probability standpoint, can you kind of explain, like, when we're talking UFOs, what are what are the odds or the kind of logical steps we have to take when thinking about did an extraterrestrial 
come into our atmosphere and we recorded it like just with the vastness of right, space. Right, 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 yeah. So this is in the context of, of uh, talking about two separate questions that people often conflate and get, get confused about. That mm-hmm. is, are they out there? That is, are they out there and have they come here? These are really two different questions. Mm. And, and as you know, you know, the SETI scientists, S-E-T-I, Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, there's a, you know, a group of them up in the Bay Area. And these are professional scientists, astronomers, cosmologists, and so on you know, listening for signals from space of a possible extraterrestrial intelligence. Okay. That's a completely different community of people. And they're trying to answer a different question than the ufologists who think uh, on the second question, have they come here? Their answer is yes, they're here or they've been here. And, and so we're just kind of looking for traces of that. And the type of epistemology employed by the two groups is quite different. You know, SETI scientists start with the null hypothesis that we have not made contact. We do not have a confirmation of our uh, hypothesis. We cannot reject the null hypothesis that, you know, whatever we think we're seeing is just random signals or noise in the, in the signal and uh, noise in the system. And there is no signal to be detected yet. So if I could put it that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they say, of course, if you talk to SETI scientists personally, they'll say, yeah, of course, I think they're out there and that's why I'm looking. But yeah. I can't say we've made contact. On the other hand, the ufologists, pretty much every one of them you talk to, you know, they, they're quite certain we have been visited. It is absolutely true. It is a fait accompli. It is done. We know they have been here. Now we're just trying to, you know, gather enough evidence to convince all you skeptics of this, of this truth. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, that right there it t- tells you a lot of the attitudes that they bring to the table. Mm-hmm. Like, how do you evaluate this grainy video, this blurry photograph? And, you know, if you, uh, it's, like, it's like one of these optical illusions where you can't quite make out what you're looking at. And then you're told what it is you're supposed to be seeing or hearing. And then you see it or hear mm-hmm. it quite clearly. Um, you know, we, we've all experienced that. And well, that's an example of what these grainy videos and blurry photographs represent. It's degraded data that the mind then fills in. Mm-hmm. So the problem of starting off with the hypothesis that uh, we already know the truth and we're just trying to confirm it versus we assume we do not know yet. And we're trying to gather enough evidence to uh, you know, to, to reject the null hypothesis that we have not been visited. Okay, that's mm-hmm. how we would put it scientifically. And um, and, and to date, uh, you know, the UFO community, or if you want to call them the UAPers, uh, have not convinced scientists. They just haven't. That the evidence is just still pretty crummy. Mm-hmm. And even though everybody's very excited about the new uh, so-called new videos, they're not new at all. <laughs> right. They've been floating around floating around since 2004 and every time they get re-released there's this you know breathless uh press release of like oh my god there's these new videos they're not new Mm -hmm. and they're no better they're just they're copies of copies of copies and if anything they're probably degraded even worse but maybe not but they were never clear in the first place and Mm -hmm. you know so in, in in the historical context you know if you go back to the 50s and 60s and look at the uh, evidence presented then it's they're, they're really no better than that it's just yeah. again degraded degraded images you can't quite make out what you're seeing mm-hmm. and then we then they have to then we got to turn to eyewitness testimony and then therefore oh, it was a general it was a pilot it was a police captain it was the fire chief it was mm-hmm. the mayor it was the governor it was the president 
Yeah. You know, Jimmy Carter, Jimmy Carter said he saw a UFO. It was Venus. We're pretty sure it was Venus. And, <laughs> and so on. So then, so, you know, then the authority of the eyewitness seems to make a difference as if their mm -hmm. sensory apparatus and brains are somehow wired differently than yours and mine, and they won't succumb to optical illusions mm -hmm. like everybody else's. Well, this, this is not true, right? Yeah. So again, you know, on, the, on this latest round, I'm happy to be uh, change my mind and say, yeah, okay, I accept, but you're gonna have to do better than these videos we've been seeing. It's, they're just really not very good. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if it's because I live in Las Vegas and we have a lot of entertainers and illusionists and magicians, but I saw someone having this debate. Uh, I think it was actually with Mick West, you know, who's been doing his rounds talking about this stuff. But they were saying, you know, all the, uh, how do you account for all these eyewitness testimonies? I'm like, I've been to magic shows here in Las Vegas and an entire crowd of people think they see something, you know? So yeah. it's, it's weird how, how people can't, see those similarities, how it can happen in this situation, but not in this one. But here, here's a question that I've been dying to ask somebody, Michael, and I hope, I hope you've done some research or you, know, you might be able to give me some answers. Why is it when it comes to UFOs that seemingly more intelligent, science-minded, skeptical people will believe that nope this is probably aliens like like i've seen people who are like no the paranormal doesn't exist oh that's superstition but with the ufos these people are like well what else could it be it's aliens like it have, have you noticed that or is that me just seeing things i uh, know so that i you know i wrote a um, a book called why people believe we're things in a later mm -hmm. edition i added a chapter called why smart people believe we're things and and the argument is because they're really good at rationalizing beliefs they arrived at for non-smart reasons. Uh, that is to say, a lot of our beliefs are, are held not for good reasons at all. You know, like I, if I accept climate change as an example, I don't really know that much about it. I mean, I try to read the technical papers. It's way out of my field. I don't really know what I'm even reading. <laughs> and I kind of accept the science because I trust the scientific community and that the professionals who do this in competition with each other who would be happy to debunk each other and try to you know that by the time i get uh, the filtered final published papers there's it, a pretty good chance that they you know they've weeded out the errors and so on so i can accept it with confidence and we know um, from studies on these things that people that accept climate science versus people that don't they don't really know the science any better you know mm -hmm. they don't really understand it and same thing with the people that accept the theory of evolution versus say creationists, they don't really understand how the theory of evolution works. The average person does not understand how natural selection works. They mm -hmm. tend to think of it in kind of a Lamarckian way. And they have some kind of vague notion of population changes or whatever, but they don't, they don't really know how to articulate it. Just in their minds, they're thinking, well, pretty much everybody accepts this. So, you know, it's probably true. And I accept science because I'm a science guy, you know, mm -hmm. yeah, I, I like science. So yeah, all right, I, I accept it. And, and so I think, you know, that goes a long ways to understanding just in beliefs in general. Now, as for, for smart people, um, you know, seeing these things, the fact that, you know, there's this argument from personal incredulity, that is to say, if I can't explain it, then it, you know, there, there must be, <laughs> you know, a supernatural explanation. And so smart people tend to think of themselves as, you know, less likely to be fooled. Mm -hmm. But in fact, of course, with your example, 
uh, from magic. Uh, that's obviously not the case. And I, mm -hmm. I can't tell you how many, you know, people I, I I've gotten letters from that said, yeah, I'm a skeptic too, but you know, how do you explain this one thing here? Yeah. And uh, you know, it's usually something they just don't know anything about, mm -hmm. but they think they should know. It's like, I remember when the 9-11 truthers stuff first started coming out, like, mm. oh, buildings can't fall at that speed. And I got to thinking, how do you know how fast the buildings are supposed yeah. to fall? I have no idea. I've never read it. I've never studied it. I've never even thought about it. Mm -hmm. You know, what the hell do I know about collapsing buildings? You know, so I watched a bunch of the videos and read about it. And went, oh, okay. You know, there's really nothing unusual that we're looking at here in these videos. Mm -hmm. But the average person, you know, they see some some homemade documentary like loose change where the guy breathlessly yeah. says oh the buildings could not have fallen like this and 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 look at this diagram here and the person says, yeah i guess that makes sense but they don't know anything about collapsing buildings right mm -hmm. same thing about you know these videos and ufos or magic tricks or whatever and um i remember being on a scientific american cruise in which i was one of the lecturers and and uh, so it's mostly you know pretty sciencey skeptic oriented people and and so somebody was telling me about, um, uh, you know, uh, about this spoon bending thing that they'd seen. It wasn't Uri Geller. It was somebody else. And he proceeded to tell me, like, I, I know these are magic tricks and stuff, but, but he did it in this way that it was not a magic trick. I mean, he really mm -hmm. bent it with his mind. And so, and the way he was describing it, I knew what the effect was. So I pulled the spoon off the table, which he didn't notice. And underneath the table, I bent it the way I knew he was he, he was going to describe and then when he was finished i pulled it up and said you mean like this and he's like oh crap <laughs> i yeah. said yeah it's it's just a magic trick you just don't happen to know that one and uh and i'll show you how i did it and he's like oh right so you know again no, uh, but you have to be able to generalize it you know i don't know how David Copperfield makes the mm -hmm. Statue of Liberty disappear. All I know is he's not actually making it go invisible. Okay, right. whatever he's, you know, when Penn and Teller do the double bullet catch, the only thing I know for sure is they're not actually catching fired bullets <laughs> at, you know, whatever speed, you know, you know, in their teeth. They're not, that we yeah. know. And, but the fact that I can't explain it, what does that mean? It doesn't mean anything. Mm -hmm. I, I, I've been really diving into learning about, uh, just our our own delusions and stuff why we lie to ourselves and all that and there's a lot of good evolutionary like explanations for it i recently read uh, the book useful delusions and and i want to i want to discuss something that you just touched on like when we're talking about the the intelligent people who believe in uh, you know these ufo's must be aliens and things like that um this this kind of this idea that no well if i can't explain it then clearly that's the only other explanation, right? But I don't know, like, like I, I have multiple questions on this, is, is how big of a factor is intellectual humility? And going back to what we talked about earlier, don't they see it in other aspects of their lives? Like you might have someone who's very, very intelligent in one area, but they don't know how to fix their car. So when a mechanic fixes it, they, they can humble themselves and say, I don't know. You know, I don't know how you did that, but you're the expert. I'm not. So why I don't get why that doesn't transition. So yeah, I might've asked you too many questions right there, but, uh, but yeah. Why do you, why do you think that? Well, is? Again, it probably depends if the subject is important to the person and if they're mm. smart, they think, well, or maybe they've read a little bit about it. I don't know. You know, just think of the ancient alien stuff, you know, which is it's big fun, really interesting. Um, but, you know, just, just notice on the show, they never have anybody that's like a professional archaeologist 
who studies that particular structure that they're featuring this week in which they say, well, we just don't understand how this thing was built, therefore aliens. You know, <laughs> mystery, the, the, the principle is called mystery, therefore magic. And uh, well, why don't, why don't they have an archeologist that says, well, okay, guys, calm down. Here's what we think happened here. You know, and then, you know, you, the viewer can go, all right, so I have this hypothesis, it was aliens, or I have this hypothesis over here from the archaeologist that says blah, blah, blah. And so now you can weigh them. But of course, that's not the point of the show. You know, the point mm. of the show, and, and again, these, these are not objective neutral shows that, you know, the History Channel just decided to hire some experts to produce a show to see where it goes. The, the, the airtime is purchased by this company that uh, consists of those group of people you see every mm -hmm. episode. They own yeah. the show. They're paid by the show. They're act essentially they're actors, although they're true believers too. And uh, so it would be like if I had a my own show in which I purchased the airtime mm -hmm. and I produced it and I had only my own guests and I presented only the side of things that I want to present and never somebody else on the other side. Well, if you knew that, you'd go, well, come on, Trimmer, that's not really objective, mm -hmm. right? And that's essentially what's going on here with, with most of these claims. You know, people mm -hmm. see, like, back to the UAPs, you know, oh, the New York Times, the New York Times said it's the real. Okay, first of all, that word real is doing a lot of work here. Yeah. You know, nobody said, you know, people, when they hear real, they think aliens. Well, no one has said that. Not not, not even the believers. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's it. All it said is the videos are real. Mm -hmm. In other words, they're not CGI. They're not fake uh, videos. You can make fake UFO videos if you Google Shermer comma fake uh, UFOs. You'll see. Yeah. I did a whole episode for a TV series on how to fake your own UFOs. It's pretty easy to do. So, but when the government says these are real, that's all they mean is the videos are not mm -hmm. faked. You know, the videos are really shot by these Navy pilots and so on. Okay. Yeah. And, and then back to the New York Times. Okay, well, if you look at the authors, there's three authors of that 2017 article that everybody got so excited about. Well, you know, Leslie Keene is one of the authors, and she is a pro ufologist. She wrote a book about mm. UFOs, and she had been working for years to get an article in the New York Times. She, she's interviewed online. You can see her talking about how thrilled she was that they finally you know, that took the bait. They said, all right, we'll do something about <laughs> this. The second of the three authors is an author who uh, uh, also doesn't work for the New York Times, neither does Leslie Keene, uh, who wrote a book about John Mack and alien abductions. Okay, again, not a neutral, objective, investigative mm -hmm. journalist. And, you know, the third author was somebody that works for the Times that covers Pentagon matters, right? And, uh, and so when people say the New York Times is now taking this seriously, no, mm -hmm. they're not. Because this implies that, you know, the, you know the, the bureau chiefs at the New York Times in their august building in New York City sat down and said, you know what, let's look into this thing and, and be mm -hmm. objective and neutral and see what we can come up with. And they did. And look, they came up with this story that the you know, aliens have visited her. That is not at all what happened. Mm -hmm. And then 60 Minutes basically... You know, I, I just I'm so disappointed <laughs> in them because I've been watching 60 Minutes since I was in college mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, I've all long admired them. And and they did it. You know, they, they had no skeptics on there. They had nobody yeah. that said, OK, here's what we might be looking at. 
you know, somebody like a Mick West. Okay. Mick West is a really smart guy, mm -hmm. but he doesn't work for the Pentagon. He's not a Navy pilot guy. He does. He doesn't, you know, pr produce these uh, professional videos and, and anal you know, video analysis for the Pentagon. Mm -hmm. You know, why is it, why is it we lean on him? Where's the Pentagon experts? I mean, if Mick can figure these things out, surely there are people in mm -hmm. U.S. intelligence agencies and military agencies that could do that. Why didn't 60 Minutes say, hey, look, <laughs> this is really getting out of, out of hand here. Yeah. Let's find somebody to bring us back to Earth. What are we looking at in this grainy video, this blurry photograph? Mm -hmm. And then the expert goes, okay, it could be aliens, <laughs> could be super advanced Russian technology, but... More likely it's, and then you, you pre present, you know, and Mick is able to do this in like a minute and a half, two minutes. He doesn't have to go three hours, right? Mm -hmm. So there's no excuse yeah. uh, to not do that. And all his stuff is featured on YouTube, right on his webpage, and it's all over the place. So there's no mm -hmm. excuse for anybody to say, I just can't imagine what else it could be. Well, your imagination isn't working very well. You should just look a little bit more. Yeah. So... So to go, yeah. So as you're as you're talking about that, I, I I know you've written plenty about this, but how do we, the average person, know when we're when we're dealing with like a false equivalence, right? Like if somebody, if a news person came up to me and they're like, "Hey, Chris, do you believe, you know, that aliens have abducted, you know, the president, and that's, you know, now somebody else, and you know, whatever," and I said, "Yeah," and then I they put me next to you. Me, our, our outlets are completely different. So how do how do people watching 60 Minutes, let's say they did bring on you or Mick West or any other skeptic on there, how how do they decipher and say, okay, well, whose opinions are more valid rather than, oh, well, you know, I guess I guess we agree to disagree. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, so there you're getting at the, a larger question of media trust and you know in the <laughs> world of online media sources that's harder to say but you would think that you know main so-called mainstream media sources like the new york times 60 minutes uh we trust them because they usually do have considerable fact checking and the resources to look into these things i mean you know last year i was getting letters from people emails from people saying you should look into the uh, the election the rigged election. I said, you, me, I have no resources to do this. You know, the Justice Department is doing this and 60 Minutes is doing it. New York Times is doing it. I mean, they have, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars they could spend on, mm -hmm. on staffing and, and resources to check these things. So we do kind of rely on sources like that, which is why it's, it's disappointing mm -hmm. um, that, you know, they, they've gone down that path with the UAP business. And, but but let's go back to your opening question at the start of this conversation. So we have three hypotheses on the table for what we're looking at in these UAPs. Um, so one is just called the, the Mick West interpretation, right? They're video artifacts mm -hmm. or, you know, illusions or, you know, th there's not one explanation. There's multiple videos. So there's multiple explanations. So let's not go down. To, oh, you're just saying they're all balloons. Nope. That's not what I'm saying. They're, <laughs> they're all just d camera distortions. Nope. That's not what I'm saying. You know, just call that, just lump that, you know, just sort of prosaic natural explanations for the videos. Then uh, the second one, they're aliens, or the third one, that they're super advanced Russian or Chinese mm -hmm. assets, okay? Because the government has already said, whatever we're, we're filming, they're not ours. Okay, so now the implication is that um, that somehow, let's take the, the, the first hypothesis, they're, they're Chinese or Russian assets. Is it really possible that a foreign government 
and their military and intelligence agencies have somehow managed to skip ahead decades or centuries mm-hmm. of technological uh, innovation and scientific discovery, which, you know, by the accounts that we're told that these things can travel tens of thousands of miles an hour and then stop on a dime and turn left, yeah. okay, and without G-forces squashing the, the pilots or, you know, ripping the aircraft apart or, you know, no sonic booms. They could go faster than the speed of sound by many, many orders of magnitude, and still there's no sonic boom. You know, this is impossible by the physics we understand. Well, they have a special physics. Okay. How did the Chinese or Russians or whoever manage to do this without us noting, notice, knowing about it? Mm-hmm. Right? We spy on them. They spy on us. You know, everybody knows what everybody else is doing. And uh, and this includes just to, so the examples I use are, you know, the Manhattan Project, the most secret project in U.S. history uh, to create the atom bomb. The Russians had it in four years, the time it took us to build it. Right. Mm -hmm. How did they how did they get it? They stole it. They had a spy named Klaus Fuchs, a German atomic scientist that they convinced to steal the plans. And he did. This happens all the time in history. Mm -hmm. Nobody gets very far ahead of anybody else. Think of Apple and Google and these tech companies and the extensive security that they have. Every employee has a, you know, a key, every door is locked, mm-hmm. you know, all the, you know, intellectual property stuff or, you know, just layers and layers and layers of secrecy and protection. And anybody that tries to rip them off, they just sue the crap out of them. They're in, they're, they are in court, you know, uh, they have teams of lawyers, they have yeah. whole floors in their buildings, nothing but lawyers that sue other people that try to rip them off. Right. And still, Every smartphone, every computer, they're all pretty much the same. They're all within a few months of each other in terms of development. Mm-hmm. Right? How does that happen? They steal it. They rip us up. They rip each other off. They copy each other. They back engineer. Uh-huh. You know, somebody, you know, takes a laptop and takes it apart. Mm-hmm. Say, okay, let's see what they're doing. Hey. And then the boss says, hey, why are we doing that? Get to work on that, Bob, right away. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and so forth. So, in the history of science and technology, there is no, there are no inventions or discoveries that are made just completely out of the blue, where nobody had any idea. Mm-hmm. You know, the telephone, the telegraph, the computer—they're all. You can see a long trail mm-hmm. where everybody, and that's why, uh, that's why pretty much every major invention has multiple inventors competing for credit. You know, mm-hmm. they, they race to the patent office to get their patent in their first because they know that the, a bunch of other people are know what they know and they're close to putting it together. Mm-hmm. Right. And this is this is true for rockets and planes. And so the analogy I make, it would be like if, you know, like let's say these UAPs are Russian or Chinese assets decades or centuries ahead of us. It would be like we have biplanes and they have stealth bombers and yeah. 18 fighter planes or that. You know, we have uh, rotary dial-up phones and they have smartphones or, you know, that it's just, it's, it's not possible. Yeah. You know, or that we, you know, that we have V2 rockets from the, that we stole from the Nazis and they have SpaceX technology for mm-hmm. going to Mars. You know, it's like, it, it, that's just not how it works. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I, I can't remember if it was in one of, in one of your books or, or another one, but uh, even going back, you know, when we're talking about, uh, you know, you, you mentioned ancient aliens earlier and I've, there's those arguments. Well, how, how are there pyramids over in Egypt, but they're a similar shape over in Mexico. And it's like, okay, well, even though they, they never had any contact with each other, they got similar ideas. Right. But now today, 
information just gets out there, right? There's leaks, there's constant, like it's it's hard. Like, I think if anybody could do it, like Marvel, the way they keep their stuff secret. But other than that, like things are constantly being leaked and and put out there. But why, why do you think it, it's so difficult? Like when we're talking about, you know, the possibility that, that these, uh, these uh, UAPs that people are seeing are either A, aliens, or B, this technology. Why do you think it's so difficult for people to sit back and just start asking those questions and question it? You know what I mean? Like, like you're, you're mentioning, like, how, how well, can they because, leapfrog us so bad? So well, first far? of all, because it's, it's far more exciting, sexy, cool, interesting. <laughs> That it's it's one of those two rather than you know it's a prosaic video artifact or whatever. Uh, I didn't get my third hypothesis analysis that is they're aliens. Okay, so we the chances of extraterrestrials contacting us or making contact with us or we finding them is very 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 slim. Mm -hmm. You know every scientist that studies the problem will tell you yeah the chances of making contact are pretty pretty low. Now, SETI scientists are optimistic simply because of the law of large numbers. There's so many stars and galaxies that once you do the math, it's pretty simple math, you know, 100 billion to a trillion galaxies, every one of which has, you know, a couple hundred billion stars. And it looks like every star has planets, say maybe a dozen or so, you know, and so even if you, you start doing the, the, the cutting pretty uh, dramatically, like it's only 1% have, you know, this and 1% have that, the numbers are so huge. You're going to get an Earth-like planet that's at the habitable zone around its sun-like star, you know, pr pretty much you know, millions in every galaxy. Mm -hmm. You know, so then that gets to the Fermi paradox, which is where is everybody? You know, if there's so many of them out there, where are they? Well, my answer is because it's mostly empty space. Yeah. You know, so my analogy is, let's say the sun is you reduce the sun to the size of an orange in LA here. Where would the nearest star be? It would be a, a, an orange in Chicago, right? We're talking 2,000 miles of That's empty crazy. space yeah. it, with the size of an orange. It's just nothing, right? You know, there's all this, you, know, you can talk, you can look at uh, pictures of Andromeda and, and read, you know, just on Wikipedia, you know, the Andromeda is going to collide with the Milky Way galaxy in a couple billion years. They're going to pass through each other and it's going to cause these major catastrophic uh, gravitational ripping apart and so on but the chances of even two stars colliding are pretty much zero yeah. i mean again this the, the and the galaxies are just dense when you look at the pictures it's just the the, the stars are so blocked in there it's pretty much just a block of white at the center of the mm -hmm. of the andromeda galaxy but even with that the stars are so far apart that they'll just pass through each other so just think about that in terms of like the chances of them finding us Mm -hmm. or us finding them are just so low, mm -hmm. uh, right? So in terms of like signal detection theory for a SETI scientist to declare a hit, we have a hit, we've made contact. You know, the, the, the bar for acceptance amongst their colleagues is gonna be set very, very high, mm -hmm. right? Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And everybody agrees, ufologists, SETI scientists, uh, skeptics, that discovering aliens would be extraordinary, extraordinary, you know, cute. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and so it, how good is the evidence uh, for that? It's not even ordinary. It's mm -hmm. poor, piss poor, less than ordinary. Mm -hmm. Again, grainy videos, blurry photographs. Come on, guys, you're going to yeah. have to do better than that. And, and this is something that, uh, that's, that's great because I've been dying to ask you this question because I guarantee you, you must've sit, sit, sat back and thought about this 
because it seems it seems like you know believers are constantly moving the goalposts, right? Oh, like if you have an explanation for this video, then they'll say, well, it could be this, and same thing with paranormal, all that. So for you specifically, just staying on this topic, what evidence? would it take for you to change your mind? Like, where's your bar set at? Like, would you need an alien body in front of you that's getting dissected or like? <laughs> well, that would help. Yeah. <laughs> but not a fake, not a fake, uh, you know, CGI fake thing, yeah. you know, like the alien autopsy uh, business, you know. Again, yeah. it's just so, so poorly done. No, we would need, uh, and not just me, you know, I, I, it needs to be a collection. Science is a, is a social process. It's a community of experts that works in a particular area, which is why we trust it. I don't trust any one particular scientist because I know they're human. They're mm -hmm. subject to the confirmation bias and motivated reasoning, just like me and everybody else. So it's got to be a community of people. I know there's people checking this guy and checking his facts. And then there's checkers checking the checkers and so on. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's what gives me confidence, right? So it, 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 for, for this to be true, uh, I would need you know, even if the Pentagon, uh, you know, issued a statement saying, okay, we've decided, yeah, they're probably real, as in like Chinese assets or whatever. I would need, well, well, who said that? I mean, it can't just be some generic committee and we're not allowed to know who's on it. Mm -hmm. You know, what experts uh, have you consulted? Who is this? You know, to show us. We want, in other words, complete transparency uh, of a disclosure. And, and furthermore, here's the equipment. Right here, here's a photograph of it, and you know the New York Times can send a reporter in there to look at it, and AP, the AP Wire people can send in their photographer and their experts, and and we all get to see it. That that's what would do it. I, you know, I don't mm -hmm. need to personally see it, but of course this isn't going to happen. This is not going to happen because, again, it's not alien. So if if it's true that we're somehow behind, again, it wouldn't be decades or centuries behind. Well, let's say that you know there's some exaggeration on those speeds and turns, and that it's actually a small little drone. And the Russians have this incredible technology they've been working on in a you know a, like a Project X kind of like a Google X pro, you know X uh, you know project kind of thing, and, mm -hmm. and they've managed to get a few years ahead of us. You really think the U.S. intelligence agencies are going to tell the American public, you know, we we fucked up? Yeah, you know, we, 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 you know, we are so hopelessly behind, you know, it's, it's embarrassing. Unless the only time I, I could see them doing this would be like, if they wanted to increase their budgets, like the missile gap mm. in the 50s, you know, you know, the government, you know, military going, hey, we are way behind the Russians, we got to, to Congress, we need you to increase our budgets, because look, we're behind and they're a threat and, you know, existential yeah. threat to our country. And Congress is like, oh, okay, we better do that. Mm -hmm. Well, that's that's what that's the exact story behind the space race, isn't it? Uh, us getting to the moon. It was us being worried about Russia getting, you know, Sputnik off the ground and everything. And then we just flooded, you know, our scientists with money and said, you need to do yeah, this. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, we could only imagine right. that or we could assume that it would it would happen again if we if we were behind, especially with the, the military budget that we have in this country, you know. Um, and and yeah, I hope I hope you don't mind. But I, I want to. I want to get uh, political for a second and ask you some questions about this when it comes to science denial. Um, if if most of us sat back, or or maybe maybe it's just through my lens, you it it seems like the left is more like we're the science people, right? Like climate change is real. We're the science people. You guys believe in crazy stuff, and you guys are more religious. You know, there's more religious people on the right. But you recently had. Uh, Abigail uh, Schreier. I don't, I don't know if I'm saying her name yep, right. That's right. Yeah, that's you right. recently yeah. had her, but but she in her book, 
right? And it's, uh, you know, it's about transgender youth and things like that. She talks about research and studies and science and stuff, but those same people who will talk about the right not believing in science will then deny other science if it doesn't fit with them. I, I don't I don't know like how do how do we how do we understand that? You know, like I I have no problem talking about, hey, I'm left leaning, I'm more progressive, but I don't understand how we pick and choose science. You know what I mean? <laughs> yes, well, because it depends on whose ox is being gored. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. the, the left, the so-called left, they're just bad as the right. You know, but again, who are we talking about with the left, the right? You know, these mm -hmm. are these, these categories are too big. They just kind of flatten the discussion. Really, it's, I mean, most Republicans and conservatives, they like science just fine. As long as it's not something that, you know, hits their hot button, you know, ideological self-identifying issues like climate change vaccines, maybe uh, just a few creationism, if they're fundamentalist Christians, you know, most Christians, Catholics, for example, and that's half, that's a billion, that's a lot, you know, they fully accept evolution, it just, just not the soul, you know, we mm -hmm. get the soul, you get the body, okay, you know, they've made their peace that way, most Christians have, right, so, uh, but, you know, that, you know, it's just those few hot button issues, otherwise, they accept science, they go to doctors, and they fly in yeah. planes and so on. And, you know, liberals, same thing. But again, uh, you know, their hot button issues are like GMOs um, and nuclear power, and especially in the social sciences, anything that smacks of genetic determinism, uh, anything mm. but a blank slate, uh, you know, Pink, Steve Pinker has a whole book about this, this fabulous, the blank slate. Mm -hmm. You know, if you think this is just a, you know, a, a dog whistle, it's not. I mean, you know, this is what lib you know, far left, more progressive liberals believe. And, mm -hmm. and it deeply interferes with um, their thinking about the science. So just take Abigail Schreier's book. Okay, it's controversial. She's probably conservative, although I didn't ask her because it's not really important. Yeah. Uh, but, 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 uh, but, but basically, you know, the hypothesis she's making is studies show that there's a, a, a pretty significant spike in self-identifying trans amongst teenagers, especially girls. And this kind of matches the data collected by Jean Twenge in her book, iGen, and that's been uh, echoed in uh, Jonathan Haidt's book, The Coddling of the American Mind, also by Greg Lukianoff. And, and they show, they start that book showing there's a huge spike in teen depression, suicide, uh, anxiety, suicidal ideation, anxiety, self-cutting, things like that. So the question is why? Why is mm -hmm. there this spike? Um, so you can dispute the data if you want, the statistics, the polls, but I, you know, they're pretty consistent. It's not just one poll. And not just in America, other countries as well, for both of those phenomena, right? And so, uh, but but for Gene Twenge and Jonathan Haidt to talk about that, it's like, oh, that that's you know, we we just accept it because it's not pushing any hot button ideological moral issues. Mm -hmm. Trans does because trans is kind of touching on LGBTQ rights, and that's a that's a sensitive issue mm -hmm. for us, for most of us. We want there to be LGBTQ rights, and we yeah. we see those guys over there on the right as being resistant to that, which historically they have. So um, that's the difference between those two communities. Now you can you can uh, go ahead and dispute uh, Abigail's hypothesis. You know, mm -hmm. she says it's social media, and she has chapters 
uh, arguing for that, just like Jean Twenge does in her book, iGen. And there are scientists, by the way, that are pushing back against Jean Twenge saying, no, I don't think it's social media alone. It's these mm -hmm. other factors here. Okay, well, that's a normal scientific debate. That's how it's supposed to work, right? Mm -hmm. You publish your stuff and then you have debates about it. And uh, but but the, but everybody's so afraid to touch the trans issue that it's hard to have a community, uh, you know, open uh, conversation about it. So I had her on my podcast. I read the reviews of her book that were critical, and I just mm -hmm. went through the argument. Here's what your critics say. What do you, how, how do you respond? And she did okay. That's how it should go. And then yeah. last week, you know, um, science-based medicine, uh, a great, wonderful site that, that I've long uh, trusted and admired. Um, you know, Steve Novella and uh, David Gorski run this. Well, they ran a, a review of Abigail's book by Harriet Hall, my columnist, Skeptic columnist, Harriet Hall, MD. She writes for them. She writes for Scientific, uh, for Skeptical Inquirer. She writes for Skeptic Magazine. You know, mm -hmm. she's widely regarded and trusted as a reliable source on medical claims, especially related to quack medicine and, and alternative medicine and so on. Well, she wrote a positive review of the book. You know, she said, I have some issues here, some issues yeah. there, but overall, I think she's raised a concern we should all be paying attention to. And uh, so uh, after 24 hours, they pulled the review. Uh, they got over a thousand letters. And, and you know, I noticed this online because people were commenting, Jeez. oh, cancel culture, cancer culture. So, you know, I, so here's an example when you ask me, you know, have you, you know, does your own ideology destroy? Maybe, you know, I just, I just retweeted that and said, all right. Uh, we're going to do something about this. So I emailed Harriet and said, send the review to me. And we yeah. published it on skeptic.com the same day. <laughs> and because uh, to me, you know, no sacred cows. We're not caving into any cancel culture. Yeah. Well, then Steve and David, um, both uh, they emailed me personally and said, it wasn't cancel culture. Michael, please don't say that because you know, we do stand up to criticism. We welcome mm. it. That's not what we're about. I said, all right, you know, I know you guys, I'll, I'll take your word for it. So I took down my redacted, my tweets, kept the review because I still think the reviews should be read. I think the book yeah. should be read. But in that, they admitted they had not read the book. And, mm. and, and David even said, I have, I tried to read the book and it was so infuriating. I couldn't get past the first couple of pages. Yeah. I have no intention of ever reading this book. And it's like, hang on for a minute. <laughs> it's one thing to, 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 to review a book critically and say, here's my problems with it. Mm -hmm. It's another to say, I'm critical of the book. And not only do I not, did I not read it? I will never read it. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, this goes against like every principle that yeah. every skeptic has ever written about. Yeah. Right. So now, okay. What's the problem here? The problem is ideology. It's, mm. you know, it's, it's just, it's touching uh, an issue. And I think not to address them in particular, but just general people get confused about rights. They think, well, if the science doesn't come out a certain way, then uh, the rights of minority people, for example, are going to be compromised. So, mm -hmm. you know, go back to an earlier uh, sensitive issue of uh, race and IQ, right? Yeah. So the idea is like, we, you know, we should not be studying this because if it comes out a certain way, then 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 uh, bigots are going to be reinforced to say, aha, those people of color are not as smart and so on. So we shouldn't even be studying this. Okay. It doesn't matter what the science says about race and IQ. That you know the rights of people of color stand. Same thing with trans. It doesn't matter what the percentage. So yeah. one of the debate is what's the baseline rate of trans? Mm -hmm. you know, the accepted number is you know 0.01. You know one tenth of one percent. 
or was it one? No, maybe it was 1%. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> uh, I got, I've been studying so many different things and right. numbers going in my head, but I think it was 1%, whatever it is, one tenth of 1%, 1%, 10%, 50%, whatever it is, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if there's one person on the planet who's trans, their rights should be protected, right? Mm-hmm. So, it, and the reason we need to decouple those is because if we couple the science to the, the, uh, the politics and rights, morals, it, uh, the science will get corrupted every time. It always does. Mm-hmm. So you, you got to separate those out and say, I don't care what the science says, people of color, trans people, LGBTQ, they have rights, universal rights mm-hmm. stand on their own, regardless of the science. Yeah. And, and yeah, it's, it's so weird. Something I've been, I've been wondering about, and maybe you could help me with this. I, I almost feel like there's something wrong with me because I, I can read these books from all different ideologies and different hypotheses and theories and everything like that. And I don't get pissed. I don't get like infuriated. Like I'm, I'm half African-American, right? I, uh, you know, uh, I've, I've grown up with, you know, homosexuals and people in the LGBTQ community and everything. There's many things about me, like, uh, you know, like I mentioned, I'm a recovering drug addict and I struggle with mental health issues. But when I sit down and read a book, my emotions are just gone. Like I, I'm able, and so, so yeah, like, I don't know. Is there something wrong with me? I'm like, am I a psychopath for not getting infuriated by reading these books? Like, <laughs> like I can understand. I can understand why some people might get offended and say, oh, 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 don't say that. Don't touch that. But in my opinion, and from what I've learned is like, like you were just mentioning, the truth is so important, regardless of what the science says. And you mentioned like, you know, uh, uh, you know, different journals pulling down studies because of backlash. And it's like, you would rather not know, like if I, if I had cancer, I'd rather know, even though it might make me sad, but anyways, like, do you ever question like, why, why don't I have insane emotions over this? Like how, I don't know. What is it? Well, I, I, I do get it. I do have insane emotions over things. I just have to, I just have to, you know, kudos to you that you have so much self-control. I, uh, I, I have to work at that for sure. Now, but, I should say parenthetically that um, whatever Abigail Schreier's politics are, again, I don't know for sure. She's probably conservative leaning or yeah, I don't know. Uh, mm-hmm. But she is not saying there's no such thing as trans. You know, this whole gender dysphoria issue is real. And nobody's denying that. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the question under on the table is, you know, well, what's the rate and why is there a spike in the rate? You know, and is there really a spike in the rate? But it looks like there is. So why? You know, and if you say, well, I don't think it's social media because that implies it's a contagion. It's not real. Well, first of all, that's not what that implies, you know, but but even if it did. OK, then then if you if it's not social media, then what do you think it is? And I can't get an answer out of anybody that's t- told me it's mm-hmm. uh, that she's wrong. All right. If she's wrong, then what's the right answer or what's an alternative? Right. So, again, I mean, there are people on the right that deny homosexuality is a real thing or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, or, or they're into conversion therapy, you know, just yeah. pray away the gay, <laughs> yeah. you know, I mean, they're but but let's be let's face it, they're, they're few and far between. I mean, they, they were bigger in the 90s and that mm-hmm. they essentially got, uh, you know, they got hammered and and finally went away, showing that they were wrong, you know, that, that you know, gays are, you know, they're born that way. It's not a lifestyle choice, mm-hmm. which, by the way, I should, I should note, parents that the current trans issue and some of the LGBTQ issues that imply uh, that kind of fluidity to gender, you can be whatever you want, you can change, you can move the pieces around and so on. 
a lot of gay gay guys and, and lesbians too, they're not too happy about this argument because they've spent the last 30 years saying, mm. no, this is not a lifestyle choice. I'm not just willy-nilly deciding to be gay today and tomorrow, maybe I'll go straight and you can talk me out of it or you can pray away the gay. You know, and because in part, because it's true, they're, they, mm -hmm. they're just born that way. They didn't decide to be gay. Mm -hmm. And uh, and also it, you know, politically, it hurts them uh, to, to, to imply that it's a lifestyle choice. You know, the idea of, of universal human rights is based on uh, immutable um, uh, features of our character, you know, our skin mm -hmm. color, our gender, our sex and so on. These are givens. You can't discriminate against people mm -hmm. based on those immutable features so like on the the cake baking issue you know if, yeah if, if a if a neo-nazi goes to a jewish baker and says i'd like you to make me a cake with a swastika and so on you know the the, the jewish baker should have a right to say i'm not doing that you know and, and, it, it, and it and that's different than if it's a gay person that says i'd like you to make me a gay cake mm -hmm. uh, because the gays are you know it's not an ideology it's not like oh i just you know, accepted this as my lifestyle today. And, uh, you know, like the Nazi yeah. does that, you know, the person chooses an ideology or a, a political position, mm -hmm. whereas the other is different. So that's the difference is that, that immutability you're born yeah. that way. Yeah. I, I don't know if you've, if you've checked it out yet, but I recently just finished a book from Jamal Green, uh, how rights went wrong. Uh, and it says why uh, the subtitle is why our obsession with rights is tearing America apart. And he, he talked about, you know, the, the story about the cake and everything and kind of like your example that you just gave, like if you, you know, uh, switch perspectives or create different scenarios, run through your own little thought experiments in a lot of different cases, you know, you start to see things a little bit differently. And, when, you know, when you're looking at these debates around science and, you know, from the left or the right, or if it, uh, if it attacks their specific ideology, um, do you, why do you think it is that, that people have this tendency to see it so black and white? Like just through the topics that we've discussed, you know, so far, I'm sitting there, I'm like, oh yeah, I've read books with this argument. I've read books with that argument and I don't know where I'm at and I'm still in between. Why do you think, people pick such a hard side do you think that goes back to the tribalism or or is it somewhere else they don't they don't like all the cognitive effort it takes to be in the middle and say i i just don't know and there's good arguments on both sides you know or 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 the science doesn't know yeah. yet yeah that's it well you're asking a really hard question that you know psychologists cognitive psychologists social scientists are trying to answer for a long time we we do tend to simplify things into black and white this kind of um uh, kind of this Mackie or this um, uh, Manichaean good and evil, black and white, up mm -hmm. and down. It simplifies things. You know, most social issues are really complex. Just think of, you know, political systems, economic systems. And, you know, most of, you know, it's really hard to understand even something simple like, you know, why do some people live longer than other people, different parts of the globe, so-called blue zones? You know, well, they eat different or they have more exercise or they have more friends or they eat Mediterranean or they eat all vegetables or they eat all meat. You know, I mean, you know, it just goes on and on. And, and it's like, why can't we answer that question? It seems simple. It's not simple. Mm -hmm. You know, you have maybe half a dozen to a dozen variables that go into some effect you want to measure like longevity. It turns out it's not that simple. And then, you know, you can multiply that by an order of magnitude for some social issues. Why do why, why does crime go up or down? You know, it's like, whoa, boy, when you start reading that literature, it is amazingly complicated. Mm -hmm. You know, when I took when I took on gun control issues for this debate, these series of debates I did with John Lott, because we had done a cover story of skeptic uh, on gun control. And um, 
And, and it's like amazing that when you start reading the literature, uh, you know, there's 50 different states in the union and we have, they all have different laws about guns, you know, different measure levels of gun control and, and uh, rules and laws and carry and conceal or not and so on. And, uh, and so, you know, social scientists crunch those numbers and it's, it's, it's easy to see how you can get it to come out pretty much any way you want. You know, yeah. John Lott's book is titled More Guns, Less Crime. So he argues in counties and cities and, 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 and states that have more guns, they have less crime. Well, when you dig into it, it's like, okay, wait a minute. You know, I, you know, I know I read your chapter, but then I read, you know, three critiques on the other side from professional social scientists that say, no, you, your numbers are wrong here and there. And it's like, oh my gosh. So, you know, in part, it's easier to just say it's all this or it's all that because it's a yeah. lot of work. I mean, just that one issue took me like six months of reading to kind of get my mind around it <laughs> right. enough that I could speak publicly about it. And even there, I'm not at all con uh, confident that my particular position that we need more gun control measures is mm -hmm. right. I don't, I don't know for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, right. I, so, I, yeah. Oh no, I was just, I was just going to say like, like all the, re like you just mentioned, like you did like six months. I, I recently had Stuart Ritchie on and I'm like, Hey man, like, I know you enjoy like going through these studies and making sure that nobody was P hacking and you know, uh, there, you know, it was peer reviewed properly and stuff. I'm like, but the average person, like we don't have time to go through all that. Like it's easy. It's just, okay, who do I trust that person? What's your opinion? Okay, cool. Tell me. And I guess it's the same with books. People would rather hear other people's opinions on books, right. Than sitting down and taking the hours it takes to read and break it down. And, and it would take even more time just to look at all the studies in there. So we take these shortcuts and, uh, and yeah, I, I personally, I think it just takes some humility. Like I, I haven't, like you've, you've said it quite a few times. It's like, I haven't looked enough into that, you know, or, or I'm not the expert in this area. And it's hard for us to do that. It seems. I'll read to you, uh, one of the epigrams from my forthcoming book on conspiracies. This is from Alan Moore, the mindscape of Alan Moore is from a documentary. He's the guy that wrote these books on uh, V for is for vendetta. Oh yeah, yeah. He says the, the main thing that I learned about conspiracy theories is that conspiracy theorists believe in a conspiracy because that is more comforting. Mm -hmm. The truth of the world is that it is actually chaotic. The, word, the truth is that it's not the Jewish banking conspiracy or the gray aliens or the 12 foot reptiloids from an, another dimension that's in control. The truth is far more frightening. Nobody is in control. Mm -hmm. The world is rudderless. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's like, whoa, you know, and that, that's right. <laughs> it's, mm -hmm. it's like, you know, who's running the economy? Nobody's running the economy. Why does gas price go up? Nobody knows. You know, mm -hmm. they have all these experts in it. Why is gas price going up? You know, and they go, oh, it's because of this, you know, this conflict or this, this event or whatever, maybe, but yeah. you know, it's hard to say. Yeah, it's, it's really weird. And it's something that I'm trying to research and understand. I don't know if there's any studies on this, but I, I used to have really bad anxiety and, and something that you talk about in your, uh, your audio course on conspiracies and conspiracy theories is what you were just mentioning, that lack of control. Right. And that's where a lot of my anxiety came from. I was like, this is chaos. And no matter how much I try to plan, there's no guarantee that I'll get the outcomes. And, and I noticed that with conspiracy theorists, like for some reason, it's easier to think 
it's easier to think these uh, uh, that the election was rigged rather than you know your guy just lost, right? It's easier to think that you know uh, COVID is this man-made biological warfare, even if we don't have the proper evidence for that. And and it's really interesting how how we want that control. But for me personally, it's actually helped my anxiety by learning about this stuff by educating myself and asking the proper questions. And yeah, I wish there was a, <laughs> I don't know. I think some therapies like, you know, uh, CBT and stuff like that, they help you start going through yes, those, yes. you know? And uh, I know Jonathan Haidt talks about that, uh, John, Jonathan Haidt and Greg in The Calling of the American Mind, they relate it to CBT and just developing better yeah, thinking yeah, processes. Yeah. Yeah, in a way, we need CBT for uh, just rationality and yeah. just kind of in general dealing with all these kinds of claims. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, you know, the, your life as you describe it. You know, recovering alcoholic. I think you said, and then mm -hmm. and addict. Yeah, I did everything. <laughs> yeah. So, to what do you attribute your pulling yourself out of that? You know, you know, I deal with the free will issue a lot. You know, yeah. so to me, that that's an example of volition. Mm -hmm. These are not determining variables, say the, the, the addictive nature of drugs or alcohol or whatever they're influencing, but you still have some control. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's something I tried to figure out. I, I worked at a treatment center for three, you know, for a little over three years with literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of clients. It was a pretty big facility here. And, and I'm always, I was always trying to analyze what separates the people who, who recover and the people who don't you know, and, and then that gets, yeah, that, that gets into a whole conversation. Well, about what, what's the, what's, well, what is the answer? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's something I'm still working on. Uh, you know, like, because for example, for me, I hit a certain rock bottom. Uh, like I mentioned, I'm from Las Vegas right now. It's I, so I turned nine, uh, nine years sober this Wednesday. My mom told me nine years ago, you're either getting sober or you're going to be homeless in Las Vegas. And that was my rock bottom. I was like, I don't want to be in the heat in Las Vegas, that was it. But for some people, they can lose their family, their job, their whatever, and that doesn't do it for them. So there's no there's no formula and it goes back to that whole chaos mm -hmm. thing. Like we don't know, we don't have a formula for this thing. And mm -hmm. that's one of the most difficult mm -hmm. parts about addiction, you know, itself. But, you know, like I said, like I said at the very beginning of this, the reason why I, I, I love learning about skepticism and critical thinking and questioning my belief uh, because it saved my life. I, I was 27 years old when I got sober. I thought I knew everything. And one day somebody like, like just knocked it into my head. They're like, hey, Chris, maybe you don't know everything. And I was like, holy shit. You're right. <laughs> and ever since then, ever since then, I, I look at things differently. And I, I'm like, maybe I don't know. Maybe I don't know the right way to do this. Maybe I'm not doing this the best way possible. Maybe someone else. So I try to gather as much information as possible from people like yourself or other people who are smart in their specific area. Then I take that data and I try to assess it. No matter where, like, no matter what it is, whether it's getting a job, whether it's going grocery shopping, whether it's my new diet that I'm trying, I try to take in as much information and then just kind of look at it. So, so yeah, so I don't, I don't know about the free will aspect of it, but <laughs> I'm currently reading uh, just well, desserts. even, 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 oh, interesting. Yes. Well, yeah. so even, um, even the addictive nature of alcohol and drugs is a very complicated one to, I've read a fair amount about that. My father was an alcoholic. His father was an alcoholic. One yeah. of his two brothers was an alcoholic. One oh, of my wow. two half-sisters, an alcoholic, was mm. whatever. 
Um, but, but I'm not, I mean, I, it doesn't really matter how much I drink. I don't have, and it doesn't lead to more drinking. And actually I have kind of an upper limit where I get, I don't feel good yeah. and so on. And I always wonder, you know, what, what it is about my genetics, my physiology, you know, so I read about it and mm-hmm. could be this could be that, you know, and, uh, uh, but you know, you get all, oh, well, people hit rock bottom and they do this. Well, you just gave examples where that doesn't happen. Yeah. <laughs> you know, take someone like Daryl strawberry that, you know, with cocaine back in mm-hmm. the night, you know, here's the greatest baseball player of his era, you know, gave it all up, lost everything, his job, his family, everything, you know, for cocaine. And, and it's like, well, apparently, you know, <laughs> losing everything or having all that, uh, you know, all that even more to lose than the average person still mm-hmm. doesn't matter. And yet yeah, uh, other people, you know, so can't seem to kick it ever. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. You made it, you it's, made it nine years. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, could, could you so have, it, what happened? What would happen if you had a drink tonight? You just popped so, a beer and, so I, and I watched a game and you had two beers. What would happen? So I know you're familiar. Uh, well, not even familiar. You, you're buds with uh, Joe Rogan and stuff. And, and he does, you know, and I, I recently talked with Brian Urban. Uh, he's into, you know, the therapeutic uses of like psilocybin and things like that. Oh, right. So I think about it a lot. And so here in Nevada, we legalize weed. I'm very pro drugs decriminalization that's just how yeah, i am yeah. but this is something that i i think about because just my personal story is i i started with alcohol then i got into prescription opioids which is you know killing thousands of people every year but during different uh stints of sobriety i started with things like marijuana i'm like oh i could do this but it led me right back to the hard stuff right so so personally just personally for me like what would happen i don't know but uh, I would be lying. I live in Las Vegas, right? Like I'm surrounded by drugs and alcohol and prostitutes and all everything, right? Uh, but you know, I when I think about drinking or using, I'm like, well, why, right? Like I used to do it for insecurities and social anxiety. But you and I just met. I'm having a conversation with you, so I don't have those reasons anymore. But it's something I do think about because you know, they're doing tests for like, uh, you know, uh, using magic mushrooms for like PTSD and think about how many veterans are committing suicide Mm -hmm. and all that stuff. So, Mm -hmm. so what would happen to me? I don't know. And, and to go back to like your point, uh, uh, or what you were asking earlier. Yeah. I read a ton about addiction and the science and the latest studies and the genetics component. It's, it's weird. Like my mom, she was an alcoholic until I was 20, right? My sister doesn't have a problem, but I do. And, and then you get into the, the whole conversation about epigenetics, right? There's, uh, there's people who experience trauma later in life. They never had an issue. All yeah. of a sudden, they, something traumatic happens, and now they can't control their drinking or they turn to drugs. Right. And it's, right. it's, it's very complicated. And I, I think that's you know, one of the reasons I try to keep up with the science. And maybe, maybe starting down that path was why I kind of see this gray area, because even there, we don't know. If we did know, maybe we could stop the, the opioid epidemic. You know what I mean? But we don't know if it's nature or nurture or the combination. And right. it's, right. it's still trying right. to figure it out. Um, yeah. Yeah, I've taken uh, some opioids. I mean, I just had a total hip replacement last week. So I, I, oh, I have some now. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm sitting here on, on them right now. And it feels good. <laughs> Uh, but you know, I, I, I can stop. I know because I've, I've had a couple of major surgeries where I've had the, uh, the hydrocodons, the version I had, but they're all the same. Mm-hmm. And, and I just stopped. It's no problem. And I think, well, lucky me. 
Some of it, I think there is a kind of a law of large numbers here. You know, there's so many, like, I don't know, 100 million people or something take, uh, you know, some version of opioids for pain. Maybe mm -hmm. it's not 100 million, but it's a lot. It's a huge number. So even if the effects is only like 0.01%, that's enough yeah. to fill the evening news of like yet another person died of an overdose, mm -hmm. you know, that kind of thing. And this, yeah. uh, I do wonder to what extent, I haven't looked at this carefully, but to what extent a lot of this is kind of hyped by the fact that so many people take these drugs, even if the effect is small that's mm -hmm. enough to you know to, to fill the yeah. evening news with horror stories yeah it's it's weird I, lately i've been thinking about just uh how we move in and out of different like bubbles right like when i'm working in a treatment center all i'm surrounded by is addiction and just in three years i have over 80 people die from overdoses right well since i haven't worked at the treatment center I've known, like, I've heard of maybe <laughs> right, like one person right. who's died of an overdose. So it depends on where we are and what we're looking at and all that. And, and yeah, that's something I think about because now that I'm outside of it, I'm like, is it as big of a problem or am I now minimizing it because I'm not seeing it on a daily basis? And that's right, one of the weird, right. like when we're just going into like, you know, where we donate our time to and the, the organizations we want to support and advocate for, you know, yeah. that's, that's kind of yeah. how I, I, I take that stuff into consideration. But but yeah, it's interesting. But like you just mentioned a, a, a hip replacement, like me, if for some reason I have to have like an invasive surgery, you know, I've already mapped that out for how I'm going to treat that pain. If it is with opioids, you know, I have my girlfriend who will give me those medications or, you know, whatever it is just to be on the safe side. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's very difficult to, really say what's right for who, because I've seen so many different scenarios, it's mind blowing. Yeah. Yeah. But um, I, I wanted to ask you one last question, just that I've, I've been wanting to ask a lot of people uh, before I let you go, and it's about Stanley Milgram. All right. So, All right. okay. So uh, I was re I right before we chatted, I, I went back through your, uh, the notes I took on your conspiracy course. And you talk about the Stanley Milgram obedience to authority experiments where they do the shock experiment. I read, I read this book called like behind the shock machine and it points out all the flaws, right? Like if you're a skeptic, if you're a Stuart Ritchie looking at Milgram's experiments, oh, well, it was all men or, oh, it was this. And they didn't report on that and stuff. But here, here's my issue when I see certain people, you know, criticize certain experiments. Like when I learned about the obedience to authority experiments, I'm like, yeah, like that explains why so many people like, like, uh, you know, uh, if you look at the housing market crash, right? It's a lot of people trying to keep their jobs and make money. So they obey the higher ups or, or when you see any kind of scandal at a, so I'm like, yeah, this makes sense. People obey authority, but there's a lot of controversy around it. Like, what are you, what are your thoughts around yeah, that experiment? Yeah. Could have been done better yeah. or? Uh, well, I think it was pretty well done actually. And it's not, I would not put it in one of Stuart Ritchie's categories of <laughs> non-replicable or, or falsified uh, psych experiments, I wouldn't. And, and also, same thing with the Phil Zimbardo's Stanford prison experiment, which was never actually experiment mm -hmm. or a demonstration. I think that's been overly hyped as being debunked. It's not, in my opinion, it's not debunked. Um, but Milgram, I'll have a whole section on Milgram in that Chuck experiments in Ooh. the moral arc. There, there's actually a pretty rich literature of debates over the last you know, many decades of what exactly was going on there. So, you know, it, obedience to authority of, is one thing, but there's also you know, kind of social proof or, you know, kind of a, you know, social 
pressure of the situation mm-hmm. uh, and that, you know, that was uh, varied by, you know, who, you know, the proximity of the, of the shocked person, the, the, you mm. know, the, the so-called learner. Uh, if they're in the room with the person, they disobey much more than if the, the person is anonymous. Mm. You know, so that's not obedience. That's something else. If you have a, uh, another person in the room who disobeys the authority, who says, no, nah, I'm not doing this, then the, the real subject is more likely to say, well, I'm not doing it either. You know? So there you get kind of a, almost mm. a social contagion. Uh, of uh, you know what's called social proof or conformity mm-hmm. to uh, uh, to disobey authority. You know, mm. so there's m- multiple factors going on there. Also, you know, kind of the reinforcement of the authority. What kind of authority? You know, there's nothing wrong with obeying authorities. That's actually a good thing yeah. most of the time. So, so is conformity. You know, so I write about this. I did a whole Dateline NBC uh, two-hour special with mm. uh, Chris Hansen on classic psych experiments, one of which was like smoke in the room, you know, oh, so we yeah. had a bunch of people in a, in, in a, in a room filling out a, a form for, for uh, this Dateline NBC, this NBC show called what a pain. And they, so these were people that wanted to be on the show. Right. And, uh, and so our authority comes in there and say, well, I work for NBC and the, you know, you're, you're going to fill out this form. And then we started pumping in smoke into the room, just theater smoke under the door. And uh, now everybody in the room, except for one person, they just work for us. Right. So they, we told them just ignore the smoke and keep filling out the form. Okay. So you see our guy going, um, um, well, fuck it. All right. I'll just keep filling out my form. Right. But of course he's looking for evidence. Like, should I be worried? Mm -hmm. Well, if it was really a fire in the next room, People wouldn't just be sitting there. They'd go, hey, let's get going. Let's mm-hmm. do something, right? So we do look to others for good reason, including authorities, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you, know, so, you know, again, Milgram's authority is a Yale University scientist. Well, one would hope that people respect Yale University scientists. Yeah. And, and same thing in our, in our uh, we did a, a remake of the Milgram thing. We built a box with the toggle switches and, mm-hmm. and the whole thing. And here we have a director from NBC saying, uh, okay, we're doing this um, this this little uh, demonstration have, having to do with this new show we're doing called What a Pain, and it's just kind of it's a little bit like Joe Rogan's show. Uh, what was that show he started Fear off Factor? on? Um, Fear Factor. It's a little yeah. bit like a Fear Factor, right? Okay, I'll do it. You know, and it, it, it's like so. What are they doing when they're saying okay, I'll do it, and they flip the switches? And you could see for most of them, they weren't happy about it. They were like, uh, uh, mm-hmm. ooh. <laughs> oh geez god are you sure this is okay it's all right all right yeah. so they're thinking you know come on i'm in i'm in i'm in nbc what are the chances i might just kill somebody and their yeah. lawyers are going to let me do this right you know so th- those are the legitimate criticisms i mean milgram had men and women there was no difference they both went to two-thirds of them went all the way to mm-hmm. the full shocks and you know they had working class people bus drivers they had lawyers doctors you know they had a whole range of people there was no difference there you know so his, his protocols were quite uh, you know quite rigorous and, and the, so the findings still hold the interpretation of what's going on in the mind of people you know we tend to reify ideas oh that's the obedience going on in his head well that's a word obedience what does yeah. that really mean you know? mm. and so there there i think that's debatable yeah. so i would recommend you know just go to that section in my book the moral arc on that you know i have it's long because it's a rich literature and you start reading you go okay this is interesting 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I forgot that you wrote about it in the moral art too. I love that because I, I love learning about like just moral psychology and philosophy and all that too. We can talk about that in a whole nother episode. But so, so yeah, before I let you go, where for the for the three people who may not know you, where can they find you? What projects are you working on? You mentioned you're working on a new book. When's it coming out? Can I get an advanced copy? What's what's going on? <laughs> yeah, where can we find you? And what are you working on? Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, skeptic.com and michaelshermer.com is the two best avenues uh, for that. And you know, my books are available at Amazon, which is the easiest way to get them in a pandemic. <laughs> Although bookstores are, you know, mostly carry. Uh, my books and also Skeptic Magazine is in every bookstore in North America. And mm -hmm. uh, it's also available uh, digitally online. You could read it on all the different platforms uh, and tablets and cell phones and so on. And uh, yeah, so skeptic.com, that's probably the easiest place to remember. Beautiful. Yeah. And I follow you on Twitter. So I'll, I'll include that. I'm going to include all those links down in the description. So thank you so, so much all right, Chris. for taking some thank time you. out of your day. You're welcome. Thanks. Thanks. Good conversation. All right, ladies and gentlemen, there you have it. There is my conversation with Michael Sherber. How great was that? And, and like you said, everything that he just mentioned, it is all linked down in the description below. Like, go go get his books. He talks about so many things, and he, he helps me look at everything from just different angles, whether it's science or topics around free speech and the exchange of ideas and everything like that. And, you know, it, it's interesting, too, because... Uh, uh, like, I, I don't agree with everything, like everything that uh, people say, but I am so curious about their opinions. And I'm willing to have those discussions and everything like that. So I, I know <laughs> I know Michael could be a little controversial sometimes, but uh, you can't help but you know listen to his arguments and his point of view and everything like that. Uh, especially because he has so much knowledge and wisdom. So I really hope you check out his books. Uh, one of his newest books is Giving the Devil His Due, and that's uh, a lot about uh, you know allowing freedom of speech and he makes some compelling arguments around why people should be able to say whatever they want and believe what they want like he had an entire book that i still need to check out where he he talks to holocaust denial so uh denialists so he even though he knows that they are incorrect and there's no evidence backing their claims he believes they should you know, uh, be able to discuss their belief, even though it's wrong, because to combat misinformation, we have to be able to discuss it. You know what I mean? But anyways, anyways, I could, you know, go on and on and on about how awesome Michael is. So check out his books down below, follow him on all social media. And again, if you like this episode, and if you're not yet, make sure you're following, make sure you subscribe to the podcast, leave a rating, leave a review and share with other people on social media. That's what helps get the podcast out there. Uh, I, I have so many conversations and today's Friday is the last week of uh, scientific thinking and healthy conflict. And uh, yeah, make sure you stay tuned and follow me on social media because I think I think I'm going to be doing multiple episodes a week. And uh, yeah, I uh, one thing that drives me nuts about having a podcast is there's not a comment section, so I don't see your feedback. So a lot of you reach out to me on uh, social media. So if you have any input, any uh, any feedback, if you're like, Chris, that's too many episodes, Chris, that's not enough episodes, or whatever. But I have so many more episodes recorded. I have so many authors who are lined up <laughs> for conversations. So I'm just like, I have plenty of content to just do a bunch, put a bunch of episodes out there. So anyways, reach out on social media. Uh, 
uh, if you have any ideas. And plus, um, I'm also working on some things we could do on Patreon, which is linked down below if you want to support the podcast. Uh, you can also support by getting my books, which are over at TheRewiredSoul.com. I've written a few books on mental health, as well as my experience getting canceled on YouTube in 2019. And uh, mental health is a huge part of my life, so there is also an affiliate link down below for BetterHelp Online Therapy. It's a service that I've personally used. I absolutely love it. You work with a licensed therapist from your state, from the comfort of your own home, through calls, texts, video chat, whatever it is. So if you're looking for some mental health help, check out BetterHelp, affiliate link down in the description below. But yeah, anyways, that is all for this episode. Make sure to follow me on social media because a lot of cool stuff, a lot of cool conversations are coming up. And I hope you all have a wonderful rest of your day. If you're listening on Friday, an amazing weekend, and I will talk to you in the next one.